Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is a really fascinating episode of Heretics. It's with Jamie Mustard, who is a quite well-known writer who a lot of people didn't even realise had grown up in Scientology. So he made for a great guest. And he's written this new book, The Invisible Machine, which I believe you should go out and, and have a read of and see what you think, all about the evidence um, that trauma makes a biological imprint on you, as in it actually changes your biology, apparently. Um, and it's based on a lot of the work of Eugene Lipov, MD. Um, so, look, there's a lot of controversy around this. A lot of people aren't entirely sure, but he makes a convincing and compelling case. So I'd recommend you have a, a, a read of that um, and follow him and all of those things. That's Jamie Mustard. He grew up basically as a slave a child slave and he suffered a lot of trauma through that and then he went and got uh, this kind of operation which or, or an injection or something he explains it better than i do where he got rid of the trauma okay you know keep an open mind have a listen but this episode also coincided with something that's been going on in the ex-Scientology community. So a lot of people won't know about all of this stuff, but some of you guys really follow what's going on in Scientology. And you'll know that I've had on the show former Scientologists, uh, Mike Rinder, Claire Headley, um, um, Mark Headley, her husband, and Aaron Smith-Levin many times. And it turns out that, well, they created something called SP, Suppressive Person TV, where they would talk out against Scientology and try and help others. They, they created something called the Aftermath uh, Aftermath Foundation, where they would uh, help people to get out of Scientology. It's a really beautiful uh, cause. And there's been a civil war there, basically, where Aaron has been kicked out. Aaron is the one I'm by far the closest with. I'm trying not to take sides, at least publicly, in all of this, because everyone's been nice to me over the years. And I think it's just a very confused and sorry situation. And Jamie, you know, being part of that community, knows a lot of the ins and outs, and he's going to be shedding some light on what exactly has happened. But apparently, you know, outwardly, it appears that Aaron has criticized some people who have the same goals as uh, as them in, you know, the Scientology aftermath. And that apparently is no longer allowed even though he had set up the Aftermath Foundation, he was booted out. So it's a whole controversial thing. And I think Jamie does a great job of talking about that and combining it with his theories about um, trauma uh, and, and what they've all suffered 
They call themselves ex-Scientologists, but it never really leaves them, at least not the trauma. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode. There are obviously, as always, some beautiful episodes coming up. But, oh, I still don't know what to say. Right now, you're on the edge of heresy. You're a heretic with Jamie Mustard. Jamie, tell us a little bit about your beginnings and everything. Thanks for having me here. And I'll make one comment on the SPTV thing is it's relevant to this conversation because if I had not had a series of conversations with Aaron, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. I was somebody that was never going to go out uh, come out, I was going to die with my story. And the reason I was going to die with my story or say it as a very old man or something like that uh, is because I carry a tremendous amount of shame and humiliation from what happened to me. And even just being associated with that group, you know, with that, with Scientology uh, has been a source of just total devastation for me. Because of, and a lot of that has to do with the what happened to me physically as a child, the defilements of my body uh, as a child. So we can start with you know my birth in West Los Angeles, uh, where I was in the 1970s, where I was whisked off to um, a nursery in downtown Los Angeles, which is behind Tommy's, the original Tommy's Burgers. If you're from L- LA, you'll know what that is. Uh, across from the Rampart Police Station, which in is probably considered has the has the is historically the most uh, corrupt police station. I'll say I'll repeat myself in American history. Um, and so, yeah, back you know, back going back to the '30s, leading up to the death of Biggie and Tupac. So I grew up in the shadow of that place, um, in extreme poverty. The first two years of my life was in a. There's no baby pictures of me. The first two years of my life I spent in a. Um, a nursery with a very little to no human touch. You didn't get your diapers changed. No one was wiping your face. You know, uh, a, a thing that probably should, you know, not make someone at all functional in society. I didn't go to school my entire life. You could maybe say I cobbled together a year and a half over 18 years and then somehow uh, uh, managed to graduate from the London School of Economics, one of your esteemed institutions, Andrew. Uh, So it's, you know, it's an incredible story of um, illiteracy, poverty, celebrity, and history. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, you know, I can tell you, so from, from birth to three, we lived in this place, uh, the park Closest to us was MacArthur Park. People in LA will know it is a park full of junkies and uh, homeless people. You know, it's it's just a park that's a dangerous place. Just to be be clear, so your parents at this point they were Scientologists, um, and this is also quite new because you're known as a as a writer, uh, and I don't think everyone knew that you were in Scientology so much. And as you say, Aaron helped you sort of come out with that stuff. But so yeah, what got your parents into it in the first place? Well, you know, I mean, my mother was came from a, a successful family. You know, I mean, it's a kind of a crazy story. You know, my grandfather, um, my, my, on my mother's side, my grand, my family rose from slavery in 1865 mm. to become incredibly prominent and prosperous in the 1940s. By the time my grandfather, his parents died, his aunt died, his parents and aunt were both successful business people. He had two inheritances. When he graduated black medical school at Meharry, historically black college in in Tennessee, he was a millionaire. And he used to he used to go work with the other medical students as a porter in Nashville, 
uh, so they wouldn't know that he had money. Yeah. Okay. So my grand in 75 years from 1865 to 1940, my family rises out of slavery and becomes, you know, this incredible success, impossible success story. And my, my right after he finishes medical school, my grandmother and grandfather moved to New York and then I'm born a slave. You know, I'm born a mental prisoner into this, you know, high control sci-fi love boat, you know, situation. Yeah. And, but you know, the, the thing I, I never feel like the story of what happened to us kids, especially this, us first real, this generation of, of first generation of LA kids, um, is, has ever been told in terms of the, the poverty and the abuse. Um, for, for those yeah. joining those in those growing up in, in Scientology. Yes. Yes. I mean, my mother, you know, I, I mean, I, I think that, you know, Scientology is a, it's a place where narcissists can be camouflaged. My mother, I think, is a covert narcissist. I mean, I hate to say that. It's always tragic. It's horrible that a son and a mother don't have a relationship, right? So that's very, what, very what sad. Aspects, what aspects of a personality? I'm always intrigued about narcissism and, and psychopathy. And, and, you know, so what are the sort of uh, telltale signs of, of your mother's potential narcissism? Well, in defense of my mother, I'll first say this before I say that, okay? Um, her father died. She was a daddy's girl. Her father died after he came back from World War II. My grandfather was a flight surgeon in World War II. He was was called a Tuskegee Airman, uh, which is a very prestigious kind of group of black fighters. And he was a flight surgeon for them in in Burma. He didn't come back from World War II the same, and didn't take care of himself the same way. So he ended up dying young, even though they were very well off. So my my mother leaves her father, loses her father at twelve years old, something like that. The year before. She, she got type 1 diabetes, and they had only developed the type of insulin that would save her life a year before she got it. So you have a woman here that has dealt with her, who's dealing with her mortality at 11 and 12 years old in a way that no child should have to. So no matter what I say, I have compassion and empathy for what happened to her. Because I think that why, why she joined Scientology. Sorry. I, th I think so. I think so. I think, losing, I think that that fractured her. And that in her late teens, uh, you know, this is at a time in America in the late 60s where everybody was joining weird groups. You know, there was thousands of communes, thousands of cults, mm. Jonestown, Charles Manson, right? This was what America was doing. We glamorized the 60s, but it was a horrible period of like bastard children, you know, free love and, uh, and the kind of neglect and abandonment of children. And Scientology does not have a monopoly on that. Absolutely. So then she joins... Does your dad, is she already with your dad at that point or does he also join? What's the deal there? She meets him there. She okay. meets him there. Um, so in terms of like the narcissistic traits, you know, there's two types of narcissists. You know, the one that we know about is the grandiose mm -hmm. and they, they regulate off you for narcissistic supply. Okay. So in other words, it's kind of like in that movie, uh, the, the Mad Max movie, Fury Road, where they're like using that guy, Tom Hardy is a blood bag. Okay. Right. Um, the um, they can't regulate their own emotion, so they need um, some sort of external emotion to regulate themselves internally. And how that what that work how that works is they either need praise, they need to be constantly admired, and then they can self regulate, or they need to see somebody else disturbed and in pain. So my mother is not the more common types of, of grandiose narcissist. Every narcissist has some form of grandiosity. Um, my mother was more what I call a covert or a victim narcissist. 
uh, which is, you know, her way of getting love bombing or praise was to, you know, play the victim. Right. So if I were, uh, so, uh, you know, she's got this hardship, she's got this mission. So no matter, uh, so she's the victim because she has to carry these children through these, you know, I tried to negotiate it with her 20 years ago before we stopped talking. I, I wanted to have a family. I wanted to forgive. I mean, I have zero, you know, Scientology has decimated my family. It's completely disintegrated. And I really wanted to have a family. So after college, I went back and, and in one of our, you know, meetings, you know, we had like a counselor there. Um, you know, she said, you know, wild stuff to me. Like, I thought you were with me on this mission. As a baby, it, not being neglect, you know, completely not seeing her, you know, I mean, uh, you know, uh, we, I thought you were with me on this mission to save the world. I mean, that's quite, that has a lot, that statement right there is the crux of why there's so much abuse. So I grew up in dormitories within a, a kind of poverty you can't even imagine, roaches, mice, I mean, there was one period where I was actually living with my mother, a rare period outside of the dormitories when I was probably nine, where I, for two years, I slept on a floor and pulled a shirt over my head so that roaches wouldn't crawl up in my mouth. I got in trouble at the previous building, which was the most horrifying building was this building on Melrose in Hollywood. Because what's interesting about LA is that a slum can be right next to a nice neighborhood. So right across the street, from the Bronson Gate of, of Paramount Studios, uh, there's slums there, right? And we grew up in this dilapidated brick building. That's where the worst abuses happened. I mean, I, I lived from like these, from three to seven, the abuses that occurred in that red brick building. You know, I know of three kids from that time uh, that have committed suicide. Um, and uh, the, the, we're just, Horrific, and the you know just the the way we were treated, you know, I'm stacked in bunk, uh, you know, uh, stacked in bunks three high. I was at, the, at three years old. I was in a bunk that was on the a third bunk with no one to look after me because I couldn't assert for myself. I would fall out of that thing all the time, you know. And then this weird Lord of the Flies Navy like musters, right? Where you're, you're like getting up at five or six and you have to be accounted for and this weird quasi-military thing going on. Um, that's Scientology, I, is it? Sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. These are the Scientology dormitories that I grew up in. I didn't go to school. I remember one time in that red brick building, I got in trouble for, I'm going to tell something that's really embarrassing. I mean, I, mean I, I grew up not learning to brush my teeth. I mean, we're talking zero care. Okay. That's um, there was a, be embarrassing. Yeah. yeah, yeah there was a, well, there was a period in you know, that red brick building. I, I didn't have underwear that level of lack of care. And just, you know, when you're a child, not getting that physical touch, not getting that love, I think, you know, it just breaks you. I don't know how I'm still standing. Well, let me, let me ask you a question. And it's, it's going to be phrased a bit clumsily, but knowing what I know of you, I think you'll appreciate it or be, you know, um, when people are at that age, typically abused to such an extent, and I am so sorry you went through that. Often, I gather they do sort of inherit or start to take on certain psychopathic traits. That's my understanding of it anyway. Sure, is, sure. Is, did any of that happen to you or did it sort of go another way? I mean, I think it went another way. I mean, I think I was incredibly repressed. You know, there's all of this attention on ethics 
and you start getting metered, you know, machine-based interrogations from the age of six or seven, right? Um, you're not really want, they don't, you're not really allowed to experience emotion. I remember a time when I maybe five years old, six years old, I hurt myself and they start peppering me with these terms like, uh, knock off the H E and R meaning H E and R stands for human emotion reaction. So it's not, I'm reacting emotionally as a five-year-old or a three-year-old. That's not acceptable. Knock, or they say, knock off the bank. Bank is your reactive mind. So I'm any so me being upset for just being a kid means that I'm being reactive. Or uh, they tell you not to dramatize. Okay, so you're if you're five years old and you hurt yourself, you're and you're crying, you're dramatizing. You can't be hurt, right? And then on just on top of that, they firmly believe that you are a trillion year old fallen god that's lived a billion times, and that you don't need to be a kid. And this is just a drop of water. In, in, a, in a future of history. And it's so funny because when I would, when I had Christian friends and they would be telling me about living for the afterlife or something, you know, like it's okay to sacrifice now because I have the afterlife coming. You know, I would be reticent and judgmental about that kind of like, well, don't you want to live for now? Um, but, you know, I was in that same trap and I didn't even realize it while pe- casting those judgments. Does it wind you up? Does it annoy you then that Scientology, I know that a lot of us and the people watching know how destructive it is, but that there is a sort of feeling that it's this kooky, South Park-related, alien, silly Tom Cruise vehicle. And maybe that part about the abusive nature of how children grow grow up is overlooked. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it does. I don't really feel like the true ch- story of what has happened to the children has ever been told. Part of the problem is... That, you know, if you grew up in the 70s versus the 80s versus the 90s versus England versus Australia or or uh, or Florida or the ranch or, you know, all these different things, the experience is incredibly different. It's always abusive, but it's always different. Right. I would say that the, the, the kids that were the Apollo kids, you know, that came before me that were on the boat with that guy, uh, the Commodore <laughs> and uh And then my generation, you know, I I mean, I had it, you know, pretty bad. And as far as you say about the psychopathic traits, I mean, I was in complete denial of having trauma for the first, you know, up until five or six years ago. And that's when I kind of started, you know, got diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder. But yeah, I'm I'm completely, um, you know, it's, I'm a, I have to fight. I've been through a gauntlet of cuts and tears for the first 20 years of my life. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that I'm, uh, I'm never want to say that I'm totally okay. I never want to say that I've all got all the Scientology out of me. Um, I think the minute you start to think er, like that, you've got it all figured out or that you're not fight, you know, you haven't been damaged and you're not dealing with that damage. I think that's when you're a dangerous person. Well, I think that's an interesting segue, actually, then, onto what's happening at the moment with the SPTV people. And we'll get back onto your story, of course, afterwards. What are you, and, and in, in your answer, if you could explain just in very primitive or basic terms for those who haven't been following or don't know about Scientology enough, what's, go, what's going on in that community at the moment? What's going on in that community is you have this incredible, um, you have a bunch of incredible people. You know, I mean, I've met Claire. She's quite incredible. It's Claire Headley. I had a conversation with uh, Mike Rinder. I've been impressed by his, you know, kind of redemption and what he's done. Uh, 
Um, that show, The Aftermath, was very helpful for me and then the way he broke about the policy and stuff like that. And then you have this uh, incredibly strange, incredible phenomenon in Aaron Smith-Levin, mm. who is, we've never seen anything like him before. I mean, he can't really exist um, outside of what's come before him. So you have to give The Aftermath and Lawrence Wright and Alex Gibney and all these people credit for why and how Aaron exists. But, and, and again, I'm not, I know him because I did an interview with him, uh, but I wouldn't say we're pals or close friends or anything. I, I, I know I've, I've been interacting with him and I've developed uh, an idea of who this guy is, right? Hmm. Um, but what he's doing to get people to come forward and tell their stories, the volume and the speed in which he's getting people to do it is unprecedented in uh, the history of what's going on here. And he's kind of a visionary. When he first started to even talk about the SPTV movement, Andrew, I thought, God, why is he sharing? Why does he just keep it all to himself? Why is he calling it a thing? I thought it was weird. And I couldn't have been more wrong. You know, he, by, per, by turning it into a phenomenon and sharing and giving people subscribers, he sped up the speed in which people were willing to come out because there are just so much more people. And that makes it feel you have their safety in numbers, right? So I think that if the game here is, I, when I look at any conflict, anything going on in the world, I'm a democratic humanist, okay? And I have a simple measure for how I determine uh, and look at the politics of any situation, okay? And that is, what is the going to create the least amount of human suffering mm -hmm. and protect the most amount of human life. So when I look at the situation going on in the Middle East right now, I'm not looking at Israelis and Palestinians. I'm looking at human beings, okay? And how can the, can, how can the least amount of all of them suffer? And how can we protect the most of their lives, right? And that would be the only way if I was the, you know, if I could weigh in on how things are happened, that I would determine my decision making, right? And I, maybe that's overly simplistic, but as an artist, it's probably the way I choose to look at the world. And I hope you don't find anything offensive in that, but that is how I see it. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? 
the internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about, but in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. No, well, it makes that makes sense. I, I don't think you can be offended by the least amount of people, the least, the fewest number of people suffering as possible. I think that's a great uh, utilitarian argument. Okay, good. So based on that, um, that's how I look at this SPTV movement, right? I think that, in, you know, if the goal is to get people out and reduce suffering, then Aaron Smith Levin is Michael Jordan. I don't yeah. think that in, in, you know, in, in the case of Mike and Claire and Mark in that video that they put out, I don't, I think because Aaron rose among, while he was amongst them, he was probably at the beginning of the Aftermath Foundation at 10,000 followers. He rose to have uh, you know, 200,000 plus, you know, and uh, has created this incredible phenomenon. I don't think that I think Claire, Mike and Mark are too close to it to understand what he is and what he's created. I was very alarmed at some of the language used in their response video. Okay. Um, in terms of, it sounded like Scientology. It sounded like Sea Org executives, you know, they were trying to they yeah. feel like they have stuff on him of a sexual nature. And so they were trying to shame him and make him small through sex. Um, that's very Scientology. Okay. Can I just can I just interrupt to say, just in case anyone who's, you know, going, hang on, who are all these names? M- Mike, and I know you did say the full names, but, you know, Mike, Claire, Mark are three ex-Scientologists, very, very big on the YouTube community who are also very high up in Scientology. Aaron Smith-Levin is also an ex-Scientologist who I don't think was as high in Scientology itself, but on the outside is sort of the the... the, the What's the? Well, I don't know. I don't know what is Pied Piper a thing? I don't know. I don't know enough about my um, allegories and things. But like the person who's really maybe that's an offensive thing. I don't know. He's you know, the person who's really sort of. That's good. Yeah, good. Okay, he yeah. got it. He got it going. He's pioneered on YouTube. That is, and he's lifted a lot of people up with him. But for those who haven't been following, Aaron is uh, much more. I see Aaron as as very human. Um, for somebody who who had such a long time in a cult, because a lot of people, and I'm not talking specifically about Mike and and all these, but I'm talking about cults in general. A lot of people who have come out of cults are very sort of there's something, um, well, trauma, and we can talk about that. Whereas Aaron is just like 
must have his own trauma, of course, but he's just like, bam, 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 and he's like this YouTube personality. He's a lot of fun to talk to, uh, and, and I, you know. So just for people to know, that has caused a bit of a argument between them all. Aaron set up something called the after, or with them set up the aftermath thing to get people out of Scientology. Uh, great idea. And a few years later, there's disagreements about, uh, I think they're accusing Aaron of, of being sort of too... Um, criticizing other people and bringing the outfit well, into disrepute. Well, just to speak to that, that was the the reason given to oust him. Um, even though that we all know that that's not the reason. Okay. Yeah. The other re What's the, the, reason? the reason the reason is stuff he was doing in his personal life. You know, he came out and did right. a video. He said he was separated from his life that involves, you know, I'm sure that involves you know sex and bars and you know things that. Uh, he's a human being, and I don't think that the things that they think make him vulnerable or make the aftermath that foundation vulnerable. Anybody cares about? I mean, except Scientology. That's except the Scientology. And, except and Scientology and Scientologists. Like, if you let, let's, I mean, let's just look at it, Andrew. Like, Martin Luther King was a known like ma like yes. marathon philanderer, and there are yeah. there are there are people that came up with King, that found out what he was up to after he died or knew about it at the time, and they looked at him the way that Aaron's being looked at now. Yeah. We Gandhi. know that Gandhi slapped his wife around. Okay, yeah. right, right. Mother Teresa. Um, yeah, Mother Teresa. I don't know, what did Mother Teresa do? <laughs> just just yeah. naming names. I'm just naming names. <laughs> okay. uh, she, my, my understanding is that she uh, refused, I mean, this was through religious beliefs, but refused to give painkillers uh, to, to her patients and preferred to see them suffer, again, as a sort yeah. of virtue thing to show to the world and all that kind of stuff. It's just, you know, people who are, who if she helped, I don't know if she helped people, but if, if Martin Luther King helped people, then he helped people. Yeah, well, the, you know, again, people are human beings, right? You know, like, I think what Mike Rinder's done to find redemption is incredible. But I think if you yeah. spend 20, 30 years destroying people's lives, okay, you have two adult children that are biologically damaged in still in that organization. One for, has been dealing with cancer. One has TBI from being dragged by a car. Um, you, and then you get out and you find redemption. Um, that's really admirable. And what he did on the Aftermath show is incredibly admirable. He's very admirable. But it, when you've become that, when you've done that, your, your moralizing card is revoked for life. He is in no position to ever moralize against another human being ever again. Let me ask you something. Say we started the Andrew Gold, I hate Tom Cruise foundation, okay? Because I noticed that you can't stand Tom Cruise <laughs> and your invitation <laughs> is pretty good. You know, and you could choose a board member. I'm gonna ask you a question, Andrew. Who would you choose? Uh, Mike Rinder, or Louis C.K. Who would you want on your board? <laughs> what do I choose, Mike Rinder or Louis C.K.? Well, they well yeah. they both done bad things, haven't they? I, I don't know. know. Got to choose one. You got to choose one. Who do you choose? I got to choose one. Well, I want to meet Louis C.K. Okay. Well, yeah. But okay. But you've met Mike Rinder. I haven't met Mike Rinder, and I wouldn't mind meeting Mike Rinder. And I'm actually going to okay, be in Clearwater. But I w I would love to meet Louis C.K. is a hero of mine, but he did some awful things. Okay, but you have to choose from what you know. You have one guy that ruined people's lives for 20, 30 years, okay, as the head of the I Office see, of Special I Affairs. See. You have another guy that did what he did in front of women in a position of power. 
I suppose the reason it was a difficult question, only because I'm nitpicking on your abstract notion here, so I'm being (laughs) ridiculous. The reason it's difficult is because Mike Rinder has a lot of experience with Tom Cruise and hating Tom Cruise. So in that respect, he would be a far better candidate. But I see what you're saying in in terms of, you know, he's done things to people for a long time, whereas Louis C.K., okay, it's a sex scandal. It's his personal life. Who cares? I just don't know how good he'd be at at being in a hate Tom Cruise club. However, well, I, yeah, I, I take very, your point. He's very, he's very charismatic. He could make a lot of jokes. He could. <laughs> you could yeah. Okay. But yeah. my point, my point is that um, uh, you know what I saw in Aaron's video was a guy that was. I knew what Aaron was going to do. I've had enough interaction with him. I thought if they try to shame him with sex, he'll just go on to. He'll just go on and admit it because he knows that he hasn't done anything. You know, like Mike said, you know, there were two incidents where the police were called. Okay, he trespassed a bar. And in one of those incidents, he called the police himself. Okay, Mm. like uh, he's a human being that's been damaged by this organization. He's trying to deal and regulate his own trauma. Right. But the reality is the reason there's an aftermath foundation that's funded and known is because of this guy's wildly successful audience. And, you know, if you, you know, Oprah's Oprah. And you can go, well, gosh, you know, why did these all these incredible positive movements have to come to come from Oprah? Who cares? She's she's Oprah and she creates positivity. You know what Aaron's done behind closed doors versus Oprah promoting and giving a platform for Meghan Markle. I think what Oprah did there was worse than anything Aaron's done. And whatever receipts they think they have, and I know what happened in Los Angeles, and I know the receipts that they're threatening with very Scientologically, okay? Um, What Oprah did with Meghan Markle is far worse, giving her that platform, far worse than anything Aaron's done, in my opinion. I don't think people care. Um, This guy, the way he went after Danny Masterson, the way he supported the Jane Doe's, um, my God to try to take yeah. somebody like that and shame him with sex. These Jane Doe's put, went through hell and th- their hell was a little bit less because they had this guy that was beyond brazen, that would just call it like he sees it in a way that gave them a sense of cathartic relief to have this mm-hmm. guy on their side saying, I've got your back no matter what. And what I didn't hear in this conversation, there was the, there was the mild acknowledgement of Aaron here and there. But what I didn't hear in this conversation is just the astonishing nature of this guy's ability and what he's been able to build. If you watch his stuff five years ago, he wasn't that good. He's mm. gotten good. Since he met me. <laughs> I'm sure there's a little healthy competition going on as you passed it. <laughs> um, uh, no, I love him. I love him. You're, no, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. That he is for anyone who is interested in knowing, he's he's just as good of a bloke, um, guy, you know, off off camera and off screen as well. Um, whenever there have been moments where I've had a bit of a struggle with you, when you're a YouTuber, you do you do have these moments. He's always there, you know. Hey, you know, you want to come on my show and talk about it? You want to do this? You can. I'll help you out and do that, you know. And he he's been absolutely wonderful. And really, you know, in building my channel the whole time, there've been two people. Uh, who have taught me so much about how to YouTube and and also because we're so alone. What the hell do we do? And they've got this sort of, there's a community and, and I know it can be a bit damaging, the ex-Scientologist community just in its in becoming a bit of a cult itself. But they've got that and I've sort of, who, what have I got? And he's welcomed me into that 
uh, and he's always been really wonderful about it. I suppose just trying to look at both sides here, you know, and you've said this yourself as well. I don't think you're disagreeing with this. Those guys as well, Claire, Claire's been lovely, always been lovely to me as well. Uh, Mark, Claire, Mark, and, and Mike have also been damaged from all of these. They grew years. up they, in worse ways. They grew up in it. They were all at the int base. But when you see a board of directors with three married couples, all people that knew each other at the international base in Hemet under David Miscavige for, on this board, mm. okay? Um, that looks very bro-y. It's a horrible look. So say Aaron's off, you know, snorting cocaine off of strippers. Yeah, yeah. don't what, say too what, much what, that stuff on YouTube. Okay, <laughs> I, I mean, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, sorry, sorry, but I don't, I'm not saying that he did that, but I'm saying, you know, you know whatever they yeah, think yeah. is going on with this guy. Say that's what he was doing. And I have no idea what this guy has been up to. Uh, but he admitted that he's been not making good decisions. Um, uh, I say he was doing that. And then they have a board meant to help former Scientologists with three married couples on it. Super uh, all ex people from the, the base. And uh, they're using sex to shame him and to reduce him to go away. Um, that I think what they're doing is far more harmful. And this does not mean I don't think they're good people. I think they're really good people. But when you grow up in that environment, if there's if someone said, hey, Jamie, you know, what's one word you would just use to describe all of Scientology as a movement? Okay. And I, and, and I couldn't use the word abusive. I would use the word judgmental. If you look at the auditing and all the stuff that we think is there to help us, these, these interrogations, you're looking inward. They're there to make you small. Okay. That's what they know. That's what they know. I've spent the last, you know, I've spent, it took me 15 years to parse mm. through it. And I went, I went and got higher education. Okay. I, 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 this is what these guys have grown up with and know. Um, Aaron Smith Levin should be on that board. Claire should be on that board. And maybe we should have an, uh, other people, but you know, I don't know. There were some things that were said that Mike Rinder said, like, um, when people think of me, think of the Aftermath Foundation, they think of Mike Rinder. Um, if that was said, that disqualifies him from being on the board. You know, I mean, that's just horrifying. And that's a very Scientological thing to say in terms of uh, self-aggrandizement or um, this also, this idea when on that second video they did in response to his video, um, when they said, when they were kind of alluding to the fact that he law enforcement had been called, he's done these things, okay? Um, well, they, the reason they fired him, um, or removed him from the board was, oh, it was really about sex, but what they said it was about was this thing where he didn't name Granberry because Granberry didn't show up at a title. Okay. Uh, it was a lawyer. He criticized a lawyer without saying his name. And there's something in the bylaws that says you can't disparage anyone that has been, uh, that has a similar mission to the aftermath. Okay. Well, Aaron has a similar mission to the aftermath. <laughs> and in that video, they're disparaging him. So now they all need to remove themselves from the board. That's not what I want. What I want, you know, I've been doing corporate PR for 20 years. I could fix this with these guys in 20 minutes. They need to rearrange their board and they need to not, they need to stop thinking like Scientologists. I have a tremendous amount of compassion for Mark, Claire, and Mike, because they all grew up in it and they grew up in it in an, in an environment that was incredibly I don't want to compare it. You know, Aaron was in the Sea Org. He lost a brother. Okay. So I don't want to compare trauma. And also, you know, my last book, which has won several awards, which I wrote with a prominent scientist, 
um, is about the biology of trauma. We now we yeah. we now know one hundred percent that post traumatic stress is not a disorder; it's a physical in injury, and you can see it on a brain scan. So which, there's which no way, which is remarkable, and there's no way you could be in the Sea Org. I hate to use these terms. This, okay, can we come up with another term? The love boat, sci-fi cult. Yeah. Uh, there's no way you could be in that, you know, without having this physical injury. There's two things that cause this physical injury: blunt force trauma, like war, seeing your buddies get his head blown off in front of you, or sexual assault. That is actually the lesser cause of what causes this biological injury. The more common cause of what causes this biological injury, Andrew, is what's called prolonged allostatic load, actually changes your biology. So post like a, a traumatic event, if it's too much, or if you carry a micro trauma for too long, okay, it actually changes your biology. We now know how and you can see it on a brain scan and it's reversible. And the symptoms are always the same. They're the same symptoms you would experience if you were running from a tiger. So if you look at everyone involved in this has this biological injury. And so since I've understood what this is, did it on my, you know, gone to get this uh, uh, reset of the sympathetic nervous system and then wrote a book to bring it to the masses because there's a private equity firm that's opening clinics all over the world right now. Okay. There's 35 clinics in the United States. In that process, it's changed the way that I look at people because uh, it's, it's increased my compassion because now I see when I see somebody doing something I don't like, I understand there's a biological imperative driving to do it. And that's true for Aaron. That's true. You know, when, when Aaron is going off and doing things that I think he's reined it in, you know, but if he was dealing with some things, having broken up his wife, having grown up in this incredible cult, having losing his brother, this is a guy trying to regulate his nervous system. That's what Gabor Mate talks about. And he deserves compassion. Okay. And Mike, Mark and Claire deserve compassion because they have this biological injury. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. I mean, it's, I, I love how that's all come together and how fascinating this is right now to think about these people who are in the midst of a civil war in a sense who have left Scientology but you're I mean you're absolutely right look I've done now uh, so I, I just want to I'll say this so it so that I'm not speaking specifically about you know Claire Mark and Mike or Aaron uh, I've done you know 300 or so episodes interviews many of which were with cult survivors from various different cults and time and time not always but time and time again I'm hearing just no humility Right. And you know, you know how you're speaking about, you were talking about, you know, in Scientology, they're acting like Scientologists. These people come out, and I don't mean to criticize, you know, um, Steve Hassan, for example, who's, who's brilliant, his academic work about cults and things. But a lot of these guys, they become sort of gurus in a sense. And I get it because it's like, you know, look, I was in it and I get it. And I, I do respect that. But I, I hear when you speak and I hear when Aaron speaks and certain people speak, I hear a little bit more humility and a bit more like, hey, I don't know, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, but I guess Not, those people yeah, are I'm still a, in sci cult Scientology mode. I'm an artist and an innovator. And my job is to work as a servant to the people. My job is to never have it all figured out. And think, and I, in my, the way my worldview is I live beneath the people that I serve, the people that I make beautiful things for and I write for. I, I serve them. Okay. You make a really, really good point, Andrew. It's very astute. You know, Scientology is all about certainty. Okay. And you, and you have to understand when in the case of Scientology, and I think Steve Hassan would say this, and I think John Attack would say this, two esteemed intellectuals on this subject. 
Um, Scientology is the most intricate and elaborate mind control system ever created. I've talked to people 40 years out, not gone near it, don't have Scientology friends, and they're still living in the mindset. The language, like even calling yourself an ex-Scientologist, right? That's what they do, right? Like an ex-Seorg, like everything is about stigma. That was a generalization, but it, it, it's constantly stigmatizing, constantly negative judge. Your PTS, your suppressive, your out ethics, your downstat, your upstat, your in ethics. It's, it's got judgment woven through every fabric and thread and yeah. certainty and knowing, knowing is a massive part of what you yeah. get turned, this Frankenstein that you get turned into when you believe in it. It is impossible to leave that system after studying it for years with this biological injury and to not think that, to not operate with total certainty. Yeah. Right. You know what's a good example as well? Just the other day, I had a, a, a public message. So I suppose I can say it publicly. It was publicly written a comment. I had done a little video with somebody who had been cancelled for being gender critical. That means they don't believe in the in that, that a trans woman is a trans woman. It doesn't mean they hate trans people. It just means that they want to have that debate and discussion. And that was on my Instagram, a little clip from it. And an ex-Hasidic Jewish woman who I'd interviewed before uh, Javi Weisberger, she wrote a comment saying, Andrew, I th I'm so disappointed. I thought you were better than this. And I just thought, like, that's such an inter interesting way that she came at it because it was to be better than this is to agree with her, basically. So, it, because I, and I wonder how much, I mean, look, it's not just people who've been in cults, everyone does this. They put them, you know, if you don't agree with me, you're worse. And it's like, I have to agree with you to be better as a person rather than just be interviewing someone who has a different opinion from you. So I just reply saying, I respect your opinion. And that was that. But because she's allowed to have a different opinion from me. But time and time again, I see people leave cults and then be incredibly certain about another thing instead of trying to, you know, because that's like the op almost the opposite of their thing. In the case of Mike, Mark and Clara, they've been in inculcated and indoctrinated to think like that. I don't think that they're aware that they're doing it. You know, and I don't think no. that they're well, no they have is. bad yeah, they have bad intention. But if they can't figure that out, they should not be on the aftermath board. Let's I'm just listen, my goal again, reduce human suffering, protect human life. If that is my goal, who is doing that more in the case of people leaving getting people out of Scientology and giving them a voice? Telling your story is a massive part of recovery. And it's the part yeah. of I was denying myself. Aaron Smith Levin is doing more for that right now than anyone else on earth. You know, of course he's been built, you know, him and Leah, I would say. I've known Leah, we share a close friend, so I've probably known her, probably met her for the first time when I was 16, okay? Mm. I may not agree with her on everything, okay? But I will tip the hat when it comes to what she is doing and what Aaron's doing. Um, Aaron is the Aftermath Foundation. They wouldn't have money if it wasn't for his platform. They wouldn't have been known if it wasn't for his platform. Um, what Aaron does in his personal life, like, listen, they should have just had a meeting and said, hey, if there's an arrest, we're removing him from the board. Agreed. Get his agreement on that. But outside of that, this idea that you're uh, getting a you're, you're, you're a bat, you know, this thing of high moral standards. Well, I don't think uh, yeah. that having three married couples on a board meant that all who were all at the international base with David Miscavige is a very high moral standard for making people feel safe to tell their story. These guys were drafting off of Aaron in a good way. And they thought he got them, 
Would they all have, you know, listen, Instagram, Mike has 60, 80,000 followers. That doesn't translate to YouTube. Okay. Yeah. These guys have 30, 40,000, 40,000 plus Instagram followers because of Aaron and partly because of who they are, but mostly because of Aaron. And they got up to that 40 and they're thinking, you know, God, we have our own platform. We don't need him. They, he, it, it's his platform. Right. And so, yeah. um, and again, it's not about who's wrong or who's right. It's about reducing human suffering and protecting human life. And if that's our monitor, then there was no end game where a hostile or aggressive um, confrontation with Aaron was productive for anyone ever. And it's really fishy with three married couples on the board that all knew each other at the end base. It doesn't make me feel safe to go to them anymore. And they helped me a lot. They, I've been talking to them about funding this biological, the treatment for this biological injury. They helped my brother who's homeless in New York change his life. You know, I'm very appreciative to the Aftermath Foundation, you know, uh, but um, they need to have some humility and um, understand that they are not in charge, they're servants. And one of the things I'd like, I would like to, if you don't mind me promoting my book a little bit, Andrew, I would like to talk Please. about this biological injury because I think it's very germane <laughs> to, the, to this SPTV situation, okay? It is. So, okay, so let me talk about what the biological injury that all of us, anybody that was ever involved in that group in a close proximity is de dealing with. We actually have different biology and I'm gonna ex I'd like to explain that, okay? Um, in uh, 1970, a book came out on Little Brown I'll talk about this book, and then I'll talk about my book called Violence and the Struggle for Existence. It was two years after Martin Luther King assass was assassinated. Came out in 1970. Um, the Coretta Scott King, his wife, did the foreword to this book. It was written by a very famous psychiatrist named Frank, Dr. Frank Ockberg, and a bunch of Stanford scientists. Um, where they said, and in that book is a chapter called Biology and Aggression, 1970. And these doctors are saying, we 100% know that, bio, that, that trauma is a biological injury. And here's how we know. If you take a dog, a horse, a goat, a chicken, a cat, a zebra, an elephant, any animal, and you just beat the hell out of it and torture it for a month, okay? I mean, torture it. Then you decide to treat it like the Queen of England for the rest of its life. It gets a palace, silk sheets, all it wants to eat. That animal will never be the same. It will be very, very meek flight or very, very aggressive fight, okay? We didn't just give that horse a disorder. We've changed its biology. Now we know how, and you could see it on a brain scan and it's reversible. And wow. the guy that invented that is a guy named Dr. Eugene Lipoff. And he's the guy that I wrote the book for to, to bring this to the masses. Wow. Jamie Mustard, The Invisible Machine, okay? The startling truth about trauma and the scientific breakthrough that can transform your life. So I'd like to talk to you about this, the biological change that occurs in the body and the symptoms it causes, okay? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Yeah. Can you do so in late, quite layman in quite layman terms? But sort of one hundred percent. I'll do it like yeah. I'll do it like uh, I'm a plumber. Okay. The whole point of me writing this book is this treatment's been available for twenty years. It's been on CBS This Morning, Joe Rogan, sixty Minutes, The Doctor Show. But whenever you see it, it's always a nine eleven first responder, a Navy SEAL, Delta Force. What I was trying to do was the reason I wrote the book is I wanted to bring it to plumbers, yoga instructors, CEOs house husbands, uh, kindergarten teachers, high school science teachers, everyone. And they were not getting this treatment, but because it's caused by prolonged chronic stress or allostatic load, a lot of the people that have this biological injury don't see themselves having trauma. So when they see it on Rogan, they think, well, that's not me. I haven't had, had my hands blown off in war or haven't seen my buddies die. So the reason we wrote this book, uh, myself, Dr. Eugene Lipov and we collaborated with a, a, a PTS, a post-traumatic stress and incarceration writer expert named Holly Lorenz, um, is because I wanted to bring this to regular people because the, I think 30 to 40% of the U.S. population has, U.S. and global population has this injury and nobody's talking about it. Wow. Okay. And I got some of the, and I get people accuse me for name dropping, but I have to do this because I'm an artist that wrote a book with a scientist. Um, some of the world's leading neuroscientists and trauma doctors collaborated on this book. Okay, and endorse this work. The, 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 defense, the Defense Department has been using this treatment for since it came out in 2006. Okay, and they're probably doing 20 to 30,000 of these a year in the military. And uh, Barack Obama endorsed this, or the President of the United States endorsed this back, as far back as 2008. Okay, this is mainstream. And I believe in the next five to 10 years, this treatment will be LASIK. But what basically what happens, Andrew, and this is my compassion and understanding for all of us, for Aaron, for, 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 for all of us are trying to regulate our nervous systems, okay? Because you take nervous system damage. And what happens is if you have a blunt force trauma incident, there's a part of your brain called the amygdala and it sends a signal. You have this gangle of nerves that runs all the way down your body called the slut ganglion. It runs to your toes, from your brain to your toes. The most important part of it, you could say, runs from your, your amygdala to your neck and your chest, okay? Um, what happens is when you have a traumatic event or you carry stress too long, your brain uh, secretes two things. Norepinephrine, which is associated with anxiety. You can see this on an fMRI. People that have post-traumatic stress have 25 to 50% more norepinephrine in their brain, okay? And a thing called NGF, nerve growth factor. Now, when that nerve growth factor gets um, secreted, it causes uh, nerve, like dormant nerve growth in the brain. So typically if I'm Andrew and I almost slip while walking onto the subway and I catch myself before I can think, your brain sends a signal to these nerves on each side of your neck. Your sympathetic nervous system is right here. And, that, and that's where you catch yourself before you have a chance to think. That's fight or flight. Is that my making sense? Mm. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, so if that trauma is too much or you carry trauma too long, you have to look at it like if you were running around a tiger-infested jungle 2,000 years ago uh, in, in South America. You're, you're, I'm in Argentina 2,000 years ago and a tiger, panther comes, a puma comes out of nowhere. I'm meant to, to live in that tiger attack for about 30 to 90 seconds where the tiger is either supposed to kill me or I'm supposed to get away from the tiger. Now say that tiger attack went on for 24 hours my biology would change, okay? Or if that tiger took part of my toe, 
that my biology would change. I'd have this increase in norepinephrine and this increase in nerve growth factor if it's too much or too long. Okay, so what that does is it, cause, it causes the nerves in the sympathetic nervous system to sprout. Where there used to be four nerves, now there's eight. Where there used to be eight nerves, now there's 16. So now the signal reverses, and that's, that's permanent, a permanent biological change. So now that signal's reversing. This gangle of nerves in your neck is telling your brain 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, seven days a week, that there's a tiger right around the corner, that your life is under threat. Okay, so I learned about this when I had been invited to go speak to special forces about communication for my first book. And I trained, I did a special seminar for psychological operations to teach them how to create better counter propaganda against the Russians and the Chinese. Not bad for, the, for a guy that didn't go to school growing up without underwear and uh, didn't have parents. You're right. Okay. Absolutely. Um, and, and that, you know, um, and on one of those trips, I, I did a they, they knew I was getting interested in post-traumatic stress. So they invited me to a post-traumatic stress meeting and I sat around for two and a half hours, all these guys coming out of Afghanistan talking about how they had a disorder. And I was angry because at this point I knew the science. Yeah. And at, at the end of that meeting, I was invited to by the guy that ran the meeting who was running the health initiative task force to come over and sit with him. And he said, Jamie, have you ever heard of operator syndrome? I said, no, what's that? And he said, what's happened? It's what somebody, a special forces guy that comes back from Afghanistan how his behavior changes, even or her, even if she's never in a firefight. Just the, the, the chronic stress of being away from your family, the allostatic load, they come back with a thing called operator syndrome. And this is changed biology, okay? It, and it comes from stress, not war. Like there's an IED right around the corner, but it never goes off. But you're deployed three times for 36 months. So let me tell you what those symptoms are. Because when I saw those symptoms, I didn't see war soldiers. This is the moment two and a half, three years ago that changed my life that led to this book and my work now. I saw, when I saw those symptoms, I saw the Mexican neighborhoods where I grew up and I saw people that survived this group, okay? So symptoms, if a tiger jumped out at you, anxiety, hair trigger, reactivity, hypervigilance, hyperarousal, mild paranoia, where's the tiger? Sense of doom, the tiger's gonna get me. You can't sleep if you're running from the tiger. So lack of sleep. Half the guys that come back from Iraq and Afghanistan uh, have ED because you can't have sex if you're running from the tiger. And then right. lastly, in the military where people are trained to protect, the ultimate form of flight is suicide. And in the neighborhoods where I grew up where violence was acceptable, uh, the ultimate form of fight is aggressive behavior or homicide. This is a biological injury and um, you cannot be in that group and not have this biological injury. So when you see Mike or Claire or Aaron or anybody overreacting, this is an attempt to regulate the nervous system. It's not, right. these, these are not bad intentioned people, right? And, and I was in talks with Claire about it. And one of the things that upset me was that I had that interview with Aaron and then they had this falling out. My timing wasn't very good. And I got dragged into it. You know, somebody from, from one, there was one letter that was written probably to OSA from OSA that said that this thing was a fraud, even though it's mainstream science at this point. There's tons That's of the, uh, of Office of Special Affairs uh, from Scientology, for anyone who doesn't know, they're, they're yeah. the ones who are sort of yeah. watching this video and, and uh, hating us and fair gaming us. Yeah, I mean, I opened up my Instagram. I got 100 plus people coming to me for help, telling me, sharing their trauma stories, 
telling me where they can get the treatment. And I, and I, anybody that co contacts me on Instagram, I will give you a discount code, uh, to get this treatment within the United States. Okay. Wow. Um, yeah. So, um, you can save almost a third off if you go through me. So if what I'm saying, if you're listening to this and it resonates with you, reach out to me on Instagram, I will get you peer reviewed journals oh. uh, and I will get you to how you can get this treatment. If you have a spouse, a husband, a brother, a sister, a child that you think hasn't been, been trauma, but is experiencing operator syndrome, anxiety, hair trigger, reactivity, hypervigilance, hyperarousal, mild paranoia, sense of doom, suicide, homicide, lack of sleep. This is all what you'd experience if you were running from a tiger, but this fight or flight system gets stuck on. Man, um, that's scary. Yeah. It's scary how that yeah. happens. And I think a lot of people can relate to that, especially what you were saying about the amygdala and how it sort of gets to the heart. And we, we all have, a lot of us have that feeling. And I suppose it's it sounds a little bit, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds a little bit like if you're, uh, you know, how you work out, if you work out a lot, your body starts to learn that you need, obviously need that for the environment you live in. That's what it thinks anyway. So it builds back stronger. I guess if you're running for 24 hours from a puma, your body learns, okay, you're going to need this like for the rest of your life, you're going to need to be like on alert and stressed out like that. And it makes exactly, exactly. So, so intelligent in, in a, in a tiger infested jungle, Andrew, that would keep you alive. That if this thing stuck on, you'd need it to stay alive. Here's the problem though. Ty jungles, nature, animals, they calm the nervous system. So now we've got all these people with jacked up nervous systems. You can get it from bullying. You can get it from your father, not hugging you. You can get it from your father being, or your mother being distant from you treating your yeah. brother differently. For a child, that can be prolonged allostatic load, okay? And they'll have these symptoms yeah. even though they don't think they were traumatized, right? But the systems that mitigate against this are now gone in modern society. We live in these synthetic environments. We get into an artificial roving environment to go to another artificial environment to work, to come back to it. So a lot of the things that used to mitigate and calm the nervous system, if it needed to be overactive to survive, are gone. And what's ironic, if you look at Scientology, especially, the love boat space, you know, sci-fi cult uh, group. Yeah. I hate to use the word cult because I don't, anybody could fall prey to this in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. I call it a movement um, uh, that uh, anybody that grew up in the clear, you know, that, that grew up close into it. And many people that just grew up in the environment of it. I've met kids who had uh, OT parents, you know, parents that were pursuing the, the bridge to total freedom of spiritual enlightenment. And because of that, they weren't around a lot. So the kid ha had extra stress and has the injury, even though they might have been in a, a middle or upper middle class family. It's one of those many human mental issues or psychological issues we have that may have been useful in very specific circumstances, but in this society are just a hindrance. Yeah, and ironically, that's what Dianetics says. It says that we have this cellular memory that used to be a survival mechanism <laughs> to keep us alive. So, but the truth, the reality is that it's nerve growth in the select ganglion lying to the amygdala that you're under threat. And now there is a doctor who first published on it in 2006 uh, who can reverse it. He can, he can basically, in 15 minutes a day over two days, he can turn off the sympathetic nervous system using a local anesthetic uh, and an ultrasound. It's it's safe. It's painless. And 15 minutes later, it turns on to the pre-trauma state. Okay. And I had it done, and it's the most transformative thing I ever have done in my life. Is are there any side effects? Do you, do you ever feel? Oh no, I'm not ready for this battle or something? Oh yeah. I mean, I almost backed out 25 times. When you grow up like me, you don't grow up going to the doctor. I had lots of medical scares because as a child, no one was looking at my body. Okay. Mm. Um, so 
Um, yeah, the, the only side effect is that for half a day after you get it, you get a thing called, you get a droopy eye, which means oh. it worked. Okay. And then, but most people would look straight at you and not be able to tell. You could tell because you just did it. Okay. Right? That's called Horner syndrome. And that just means it worked. Um, but no, there's, they've been, this, this shot was actually developed in 1925 for tingling hands. And the doctor was doing research on women going through menopause to, to treat hot flashes when some of these women started telling them that their, their post-traumatic stress symptoms went away. So he started moving it and modifying it. And now we call it the dual sympathetic reset. Okay, so even if you read my book, The Invisible Machine, okay, all I care about when I want someone to read that book is they may not want to go get the treatment, but you cannot read that book because I explain how it works with all, we explain, me and Holly and Eugene, how it works with all the other therapeutics. What's good for you? What's bad for you? How does ketamine work? What does THC do? Physical therapy, you know, you know talk therapy is amazing. Uh, EMDR, RTM, neurofeedback, there's all these amazing therapies out there and they work. But what, what's happening is we're trying to run software over broken hardware. You wouldn't do physical therapy over a broken leg. You need to fix the biological injury first and you'll get so much further. It's so, absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So, you know, at point, one of the things I've heard in the debate on this post-SPTV thing, Andrew, is that maybe the Aftermath Foundation needs to expand its scope, them and Aaron, uh, beyond just helping people get out. Now that, that Aaron's created this funding juggernaut because people want to help. And we need to help people recover. And, mm. and to give Claire credit, the moment she heard about this and I talked to her, she started talking to me about, hey, can the aftermath fund this? But, wow. you know, yeah. So they're, I know they're interested in it. And I hope that this battle with this stuff going on right now, that they, you know, read, you know, read the science and, and, and give people this relief. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Tell people one more time, you know, where can they get your uh, book or, and follow you on socials and things like that? Okay. If you find me um, at uh, Jamie underscore mustard at on Instagram and you want treatment, I'll get you the discount code and I'll get you all of the information you'd need from peer reviewed journals to where you can get this. I, anybody that reaches out to me will get a reply from me for treatment and, and a discount. Okay. So I strongly, like when I did the interview with Aaron, I think I had every day for two hours, I was responding to people getting them the treatment and a lot of people booked it. That's my goal is to get people relief. Okay. Wow. Um, you couldn't, I could guarantee you how many people in Gaza have this 100%, 100% of the people living in Gaza have this biological yeah. injury. Right. And it explains, I mean, think about it even from the conflict that's going on there or a conflict that goes on in America. Andrew, like you have a black kid that grows up in the projects, the stress of growing up in the environment has changed his biology. He has the symptoms telling him his life is under threat all the time. Then you have a cop who has to pull people over all the time. He or she has the same injury because they don't know what's going to happen every time they pull someone over. So they're carrying that chronic stress as a first responder and they it's a traffic stop and something crazy happens. Why? Because our biology for both these people, this innocuous situation, their biology is lying to them. And it's not all of the conflict, but it, it, when we see complete irrationality in the way that people treat each other in conflicts, often there's a biological imperative and no one is talking about it. Is, is there a way we can answer any questions, Andrew, or is there anything else you want to talk about? Uh, let's just says, thank you, Monica, as well, who said, I'm so sad for Aaron. He appeared so hurt by the board we thought were his friends. Note, he is how I first found your channel. Well, there you go. What an absolute 
legend and uh, Aaron is a legend um, and I think you know he'll hopefully he'll tune in today as well and he'll be um, buoyed by what you've said about him I'm, I'm telling you that, yeah, I'm saying the truth about him in my well, opinion absolutely. My, I mean I'm not overly certain my my opinion is this guy is doing astonishing things to help people. I've never seen anything like it. One thing that's missing from the conversation, Andrew, is the phenomenon of Aaron Smith-Levin and his ability to get people to talk and feel relief on an individual one-on-one basis. What he's done with his channel and what he's done by creating this network is astonishing and unprecedented. And if we're going to say anything negative about Aaron Smith-Levin, let's agree first that he's Michael Jordan. If we're going to talk about Michael Jordan gambling, he's Michael Jordan. Okay, and Aaron Smith Levin, love him or, you know, and again, I'm not, I would not say we're even friends. I don't have a dog in the fight. Okay. Mm. Uh, I know his heart is in the right place and I don't care what he's doing in his personal life. I don't think anybody else does. If he does something where he gets it, you know, where, where it's not maybe going to happen, but it happens, then kick him off the board. Until then, they had an incredible thing going. And yeah. this was all completely unnecessary. Well, you know, I, I, you know, I, I don't care either what he does in his personal life. Except I do care a bit because, you know, I like to get the story from him if, if it's a funny story. Obviously, not if anything really bad's happened. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But you know what I'm saying. I mean, you got to have colourful yeah. friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, what is Andrew I'm, up to? He's imitating <laughs> Tom Cruise quietly by himself at night. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> um, I've got. Yeah, uh, got yeah. I know. I know. I'm. I. Or I, I, I thinking of things to say about Meghan Markle. I've got. Uh, uh, one question we can answer then from Bosom Buddy Bullies Burgesses, who says, where can I get the data slash research stating that trauma is an evidence biological manifestation because I'm trying to get therapy covered by insurance and they are deeming the treatments as experimental? Uh, I don't think it's, ex I wouldn't say it's experimental at all. There's a multi-billion dollar private equity firm do opening up clinics all over the world. There's 35 in the United States. There's peer-reviewed studies. Um, uh, the, the US military has been doing this for 20 years. This is mainstream. It's just send me if anybody that wants, listen, if you want to know why someone around you, if they have those symptoms is acting that way. The only reason I want people to read my book is because I know that no one can read that book and not know after they read it, that these symptoms, that the way these symptoms are biological. When I, I when I went and saw Citizen Four, that movie about Ed Snowden, I walked into that believing the Obama administration's narrative. This guy was a horrible, traitor, narcissistic, self-aggrandizing lunatic. When I walked out of that movie an hour and a half, two hours later, I thought this guy is one of the greatest heroes in a hundred years. Okay, they changed my world view of the world in an hour and forty five minutes. If you read my book, there, I, I think there's no one, I don't think anyone could read this book and not understand that what's going on inside them is biological. Now it's reversible and treatable. Contact me on Instagram. I will get you the discount and I will get you all and I will get you the studies and the evidence that you're asking for, whoever you are, not just the super chat. That was fantastic. I thought, um, I wonder what you thought. Are you going to go out and get his book, The Invisible Machine, about trauma that infects us and changes our bio biology uh, and, and might you follow Jamie Mustard on some social media outlets who knows what you might do but I hope that was of interest to you and as, as I say always big episodes I've got some really big in-person interviews planned in the next few weeks so hopefully there'll be some really cool episodes coming out <laughs>